Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Catholic Recon, Testimonies from Reverts and Converts. I'm your host, Eddie Trask, and this week's guest is Brian Topham, who has an incredible YouTube channel that I want you to check out. It's called Quest for Faith with Brian. He yep. is a convert from the Church of Christ. Brian, welcome to the program. It's a blessing to have you here. Thanks, Eddie. I really appreciate you having me on. So let's take a minute. Why don't you talk about your YouTube channel for a few minutes, and then we'll get into your testimony. What yeah. was the genesis of the channel, and what do you try to focus on? So the genesis of the channel was, if we hadn't have been in lockdown, because I started it in 2020, I don't know if I would have started it. Um, I, maybe I would have, because YouTube was a big source of me, like looking up speeches and talks on trying to figure out things. Uh, and uh, basically, I couldn't stop talking about everything I was learning because I felt like uh, most of my life I'd been lied to the more I learned about Catholicism. And so um, it just it kept bugging me. And so I started it when I was still in RCIA. I was trying to wait until I was confirmed, but um, I just you, couldn't. You couldn't help couldn't, it? I couldn't keep it in. So, That's awesome. Um, yeah, I started, I started the channel just going through the basic first uh, – really issues I had and what, how I got over them and the research I did to figure that out. And then uh, most of the time on my channel, I'm trying to bring up complicated Catholic issues or topics, not issues, um, and make them simple for people to understand. And I usually kind of, I give a, a perspective on the way I thought about it as a Protestant versus how I see it now. Um, and so, and, and I do a few interviews here and there too, but uh, yeah, it's been a blast. So. And I'm sure uh, it's been edifying to get Protestants, current Protestants that chime in to say, hey, this has got to be, I, I don't know, maybe the first video I've seen that explains this doctrine yeah. in this way, right? You know, I always say that the hours you put in making these videos, right, you're, you probably feel the same way. Uh, if one person converts, it's 100% worth all the hours and time you put into uh, to making videos and when you get messages from people, when uh, they reach out and email me, and like, hey, thank you so much for that video. It really helped me understand whatever topic. Um, it just, it, it warms my heart. And I'm just grateful that God's given me the voice to be able to do that. Um, that, you know, I, I help a few people out on their on their way, uh, their journey home to the Catholic Church. Beautiful, beautiful. So how far back, where, where did the the journey into the Catholic faith begin? Well, I guess we, we can kind of start off framing it where uh, let's sure. start off with uh, how I grew up. So um, I grew up Church of Christ and my grandfather was was a Church of Christ preacher really up until COVID. So, I mean, he preached until his and late into his 80s. Um, and so for those that don't know who Church of Christ is, it's very fundamentalist. Uh, they started in the in the. Uh, 1830s in the uh, um i was gonna say glenn campbell that ain't right uh the campbell movement stone campbell there we go that's that's what i'm looking for the stone campbell movement and what they basically did is they threw out um everything that they felt was man-made so all creeds everything external and just were like hey if we have scripture we're going to figure out how the church should be run just based off the text sure 
And uh, so, yeah, so like for a characteristic with them, with Church of Christ is we don't use instruments in, uh, or they don't use instruments. I still say the we, right? Yeah. That's how I ingrained mean, it's still, it is. It's still new. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's, uh, um, so yeah, it's all acapella singing. Um, they, uh, it's funny because I always thought it was, they, they definitely love scripture, um, but it's through the lens of a, what I learned learning about the catholic faith is through the lens of a seven or 19th century protestant right like it, it doesn't quite make sense when you start learning uh the 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 actual uh background knowledge you need to know with the jewish context sure to understand scripture better so that was my background and it's very very uh anti-catholic so um, I, it's funny to me now, and this memory is always stuck in, stuck in my head, but the first time I ever heard, heard even the word Catholic, um, I think I was five or six Saturday morning watching Notre Dame play football. Cause they were always, always on. This is, this is in the eighties y'all. So, uh, this is before you had game day and football all day long. So that was definitely Notre Dame was always on NBC. And I remember watching them and I'm sitting there and I said something like, I want to play for Notre Dame when I grow up because I just love their uniforms, those gold helmets and everything. And my Nana uh, speaks up from the couch and goes, Notre Dame's Catholic. You can't play for them. And I was like, okay. Like, I, I don't know why that memory, it just, it was like a core memory of mine. Right. And that was the first time I ever heard anything Catholic. And growing up, I remember my sister was friends with, with this girl that was Catholic and she went to mass with her once. And I remember being very upset that my parents even let her go. Wow. To mass. So when I talk about being ingrained that uh very anti-Catholic, that that's really how I was raised. And um and the the journey to the Catholic Church probably really started in the late uh 2000s, uh when I was in grad school. Um I started getting dissolution with the Church of Christ. At this point, I'm married. I have my first kid, and I had moved back to Abilene, Texas, to get my master's. And for those that don't know, Abilene is kind of the hub of Church of Christ for Texas. Uh, Abilene Christian University is the Church of Christ school, and so there's oh, it's only a hundred thousand people that town, and there might be forty, fifty Church of Christ churches in that town. So there's a ton and there's a few really big ones. And I just, it just wasn't clicking. And one of the things that they always talk about is that they are, um, they're, the, they're just like the first century church. Okay. But that the more, you know, the older you get, the more you're like, how that doesn't make any sense. Like, I, I don't think that's right, but I wasn't going to look into it at that point. So I really became disillusioned and, uh, and some we had a really tough time in our marriage at that point. Um, school was hard. We got done with school. We were still broke. Like it was just hard. And I just at at one point I I'd kind of just given up. I was like, I'm not going back to church. I'm done. I, I just can't do this anymore. And um, that only lasted about six months because I don't know. It just felt wrong not going to church on Sunday. Sure. And so we started church shopping at that point because I knew I wasn't going back to Church of Christ. It just wasn't going to happen. And for me at the time, it was more of just going through the motions. It wasn't like I was trying to find anything. And we landed at a Methodist church 
Um, my wife grew up Methodist and so it was comfortable for her. I was fine with it. And, uh, it just was kind of this, I don't know, it, it was duct tape on my faith journey to just kind of keep it together. Right. Um, so I think fast forward a little bit and it's right before my second child was born. My wife finds out, and I don't know where she read this or found it out that the, um, Apocrypha, which are the books that the Protestants have removed from our Bible, um, wasn't actually removed from the uh, Old Testament until the 1800s. So up until really about 1850, 1880s, you still could buy a Protestant Bible that it would all those books would be in there, but they they would obviously be set apart in the Apocrypha in the middle of, of between the Old and New Testament. And it didn't sit right with me. I, I really, uh, so this was 2014, somewhere in there, but that bothered me. But at the time we were pregnant, we were going through all that. And I just kind of put it on the back burner for a number of years because just life happens and we're okay going through the motions, going to this church. So um, fast forward to about 2018, is uh when the methodist church really started talking about uh being able to have gay weddings and gay clergy and they were starting to have this debate and um it was it was an interesting time in 2018 because the conference voted against it and it wasn't the american churches that voted uh against it it was all the foreign methodist churches that turned it down oh wow and so it's, I had a feeling where our pastor was going to land on this. I knew he was probably going on the wrong side of things. And so we were already, they already had stuff online at that point, which is kind of ahead of the curve, I guess. But I didn't even go to go to church that, that Sunday because I knew he was going to talk about the conference. And he stood up and said he was very disappointed in the conference and that he was going to lead a Bible study to show how gay marriage is biblical. Wow. And that was the last time I went to church there. And so at this point, I just kind of feel like I'm lost, right? Like uh, a lot of the other churches we had shopped and, and rejected was they were good with that, with gay marriage, the Presbyterians, you know, you start, you start going down the list and it's kind of scary how many Protestant churches are completely open to it. It's very, very few and far between that aren't. Um, and so we kind of felt we we didn't have anywhere to go. Uh, we were even checking out Bible churches, and they weren't necessarily against it. What they does that mean? Out. What what does that uh, mean? By, is it like the signs that say Bible believing church? Yeah, well, it's like the ones that have the the quirky names like Grace Church or oh, like you know, a non -denominational, non denominational. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So if you hear Bible church, it's non denominational. Is basically what what they're getting at. If you if you hear that, so yeah. Um, and but then it popped back in my head in this i guess that i think he made that sermon in november of 2018 and in january it popped back in my head about the scriptures being taken out and so I, i'm like i got i'm not going anywhere on sundays let's just research the heck out of this and figure out what's happening and especially with my background like solo scriptura bible is really important and to pull stuff out not even well, i mean at the yeah i mean 
less than 200 years ago start pulling books out of the Bible? Because I always grew up with the idea that it was Martin Luther that that removed them, but he didn't. He, he just didn't. no. He just he... put them in the center and said, "Yeah, these aren't canon, but they're still good to read." That's literally the note he put in the Lutheran Bible. Yep. And so, um, so yeah, come to find out, it it was true, and uh, it started the push to remove them started in uh, 1826. And it was the Scottish Bible Society. It wasn't hard to find this. This was actually on Wikipedia <laughs> and then verified it, right? Like I yeah. never, I don't trust Wikipedia. <laughs> I have to verify it. So, well, they, um, and what's great is they actually have primary source citations. Sometimes they don't, but yeah, and you a scroll lot of times down to the do. bottom and yep. you find it. And yep. so, yeah. And so it was the um, Scottish Bible Society that started petitioning the, uh, the, English Bible Society or London Bible Society uh, to stop um, printing the Apocrypha in uh, in Protestant Bibles. And their two reasonings are, uh, one, it was going to be a lot cheaper to print the Bibles, to not have those seven books in there. Um, and the other, and this is really interesting, uh, Gary Machuda uh, has, done, has done a ton of research on this. Um, and, and he's a good, good buddy of mine. And he, uh, he actually went to England and got their, uh, meeting notes when they were discussing this back in the 1820s. Oh and their main complaint was, uh, Protestants were reading the Apocrypha and becoming Catholic. So those were their two reasons the, it was cheaper and people were turning to the Catholic church because they were reading it. Uh, essentially, like he does a whole, yeah. if you want to check that out on his channel, y'all, it's, it's worth watching. Apocrypha Apocalypse, yeah. the yeah. fantastic channel. Yeah. Yes. If you want to dive deep into this topic, he's your man. So, um, but yeah, so that, that's essentially their two reasons why they, they didn't want the Apocrypha in there. And so, uh, really after about 1880, if you bought a Protestant Bible, it wasn't going to have that in there. And so, that didn't sit well with me at all um, because uh, it just didn't. And with like, uh, like I was saying with my background with church of Christ and being solo scriptura and scripture meaning so much to me growing up Yeah. Um, to edit it out in the 1800s when I find out it wasn't Martin Luther that did it, it, it didn't sit right. Uh, so from, from there, I was like, well, why did Martin Luther remove these? Um, why did he not think they were canon? And so I started researching Martin Luther and uh, reading his, uh, I, I mean, I, I can't even tell you how many things I read about him, but most of the the reasoning that they that he was considering it not canon and what most Protestants consider it not canon didn't hold any water. Um, one of the one of the ones I think my mom brought up because my uh, my family's not exactly happy I'm Catholic. So, uh, but we can get into that. But um, was that there was no prophets for 400 years. God was silent. And that's why those shouldn't be in there. And uh, which doesn't make sense because the prophetess Anne, Anna was in the temple when Jesus was presented as a baby. Well, the reason they they said that there's no prophets was because they say uh that they were waiting for a prophet to, to tell them what to do with something in the temple. Oh, okay. To come. Right. And they yeah. take that scripture as, oh, there's no more prophets, is Got the way it. they read it, which 
doesn't make sense if there's already a, a prophet a prophet sitting at the temple uh when jesus is presenter synagogue um doesn't make sense so that one didn't sit i was like nope that's not it the other one is that some of them are written in greek and yep. they weren't written in hebrew yep and i'm for me jesus spoke aramaic you know like he spoke hebrew and aramaic and obviously i probably greek too because the the romans and probably latin um I, language shouldn't have been a barrier um and so it, it just i i feel like that's that's a cop out right to say language um especially when you when you think about um just the spread of, of judaism across the world and that it, it would be like not accepting the our current english bibles because they're written in english and not in greek and in hebrew yeah uh, th that's the same argument there um and so one of the the last ones that i thought might hold water was martin luther felt that the jews had superiority over the old testament yep and that their scriptures didn't have those books in them and i said well i don't necessarily agree they have you know uh they have supremacy over that what when was their canon finalized like when did they come up with their books and that's the part that I went, oh my gosh, Martin Luther, did, and he's wrong, but he didn't have this data anyway. So I can't, you know, I mean, he doesn't have the internet to to yeah. search through text. So I can't. That's right. But um, you, I found out that they, they sealed their canon pretty close to around the time we sealed ours in the 300s. So are some scholars even think it's later than that. So to find out that there was five thoughts of canon during Jesus's time, I was like, you can't, you can't base it off the off the Torah, and it's but, easy to find too. And I think one of the a really good book is, um, well, Gary's book. I already mentioned Gary, but why Catholic Bibles are bigger. His is huge, but a, a simple yeah. read is the Bible is a Catholic book, and I think that's Jimmy Aiken. Like that's yes. a great summary of the topic, and it's only about 100 to 200 pages. It's pretty yep. easy to get through. Yep. Um, but you had the Sadducees and Pharisees believed in different canon. You had the Septuagint that the Jews of the of the Hellenist Greek world uh, thought was, was canon. Um, and I think there was two others in there, too. And so you had these five different views on canon, even in Jesus's time, and Jesus, if you, when you're reading scripture, he argues with the Sadducees and the Pharisees different because I, I believe it's the Sadducees only believe that the books of the, of the law were canon and that the prophets in the later books were not canon, where the Pharisees had a wider view of canon. Mm. And so when you, when Jesus is arguing with the Sa Sadducees, um, it, it's like, well, why didn't he, I mean, I even learned this as a Protestant, this part, that he didn't bring up certain arguments because he knew that they didn't believe that these books are canon where they did believe in the first five books got it and so this literally threw threw me for a loop because i'm going wow so martin luther's dead wrong on this the catholics and the orthodox church are right because they're the only two that i knew of that had a full bible and and still do i mean that is it and so then it 
it really was kind of a, oh no, what am I going to do? Right. I, I grew up hating Catholic church. Yeah. And orthodoxy didn't, even from the get-go, didn't seem right to me um, because I felt like it was just a lesser form of Protestantism. Um, but I did, still was doing my due diligence and research on that. And, and, but the, around this same time, right? So this is all t- spring of 2019 when this is all happening. And every day when I get off work, kids are asleep. I'm in my, I'm in my office doing research and reading. And I'd come out and tell my wife all these things. And, uh, and she's doing a study on the book of John for Lent. And it was pretty close after I, uh, I figured this out. I'm walking in the kitchen and I think my wife was already leaning Catholic at this point before me, because she was listening to those, uh, Ascension presents video by father Mike Schmitz all the time while she was cooking. And it would always shock me to walk in and hear him talking and go, wow, I agree with a Catholic priest. That's kind of weird. You know, like (laughs) it was psychologically messing me up with this. Right. And, um, but she'd gotten to John six in, in her study. And she, she was like, I need you to come in here and listen to this. And it was, uh, it was a talk. It was father Mike Schmitz and it was a talk he was giving on the bread of life discord. And I had never heard it talk, talked about that way. I'd never heard, um, as a Protestant, you spend a lot of time focusing on the beginning with the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. And you kind of glance over the, the, the most important half of John six as a Protestant. And it kind of floored me and in what he was saying and that, you know, this is where Christ is saying, I am the bread of life. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it was a really compelling talk. And I was just, okay, what is this? Have I been wrong my whole life that it's not a symbol? And so I start again researching. And the the tipping point on John six for me was learning the emphasis that's given in the Greek. Yeah. On the word the three eat. times. The... Yeah. Yeah. Because if you if you start reading that, and nowadays it's so easy to do that because they have all these lexicons you can look up, right? And just go, I don't read Greek, but I can go, oh, well. And I would use Protestant lexicons for Greek, right? I wouldn't even use a Catholic source. I'd be using the Protestant ones because I'm like, no, let's stick. I'm not Catholic. I'm not going to do this. And to find out that the word he uses for eat in the in like 34, verse 34, 35 or around there is the normal uh, fuego, I believe what it is, um, which just means to eat. But then in verse 54, when they're questioning him and going, no, how can we eat you? He switches to, um, I think it's Drago, I want to say, um, which means to gnaw on or to chew or to devour. Like it's a visceral word for eating that's not used. That's not a common word to eat. Um, and you, And then you realize he wasn't kidding around. Like he quadruples down during that talk. And it just blew my mind, especially after he says that. And then they go, this is a hard saying. And many of his followers that have literally watched him feed 5,000 
heard about him walking on water, watched him heal the sick, had been with him since since the wedding at Cana, right? Left him over this teaching. And, and the fact that he just doesn't say anything, doesn't correct it, doesn't have those conversations he has with the apostles later on, like in other parts of the Bible where he explains what, he's, what he means. He just leaves it there. And, uh, and to have him turn to the 12 and go, are y'all leaving too? Yeah. And, and, you know, like, wow. And to, to even more of an emphasis, if you start chapter seven in John, John chapter seven, it says that he had to leave the region because they were going to put him to death because of that teaching. And I'm going, oh my gosh, it, it is his body and blood. It, it is the real presence. And so you even, realize that you realize that and just sat there shocked for a little bit or do you remember? Yes. And then the, the, the nerd in me or the, <laughs> the nerd and the, oh my gosh, I don't really want to believe this in me was like, there has to be another verse in the Bible in the new Testament that talks about this. Like I, I looking back now, my thought, right? Like, I don't want to believe Jesus, but does someone else say this? No, but but it's Jesus. that's a very that's so honest of you. I mean, seriously, <laughs> that that get that gets everyone into your head. Like, yeah, you're, like, you're kind of freaking out, and I, totally, I've got to like, find a solution I, to this. I don't want to believe the words of my Lord, but let me see what it, let me see it, what it, someone else. Says. Yes, and uh, and then you, I read in First Corinthians chapter eleven. I think starts in verse twenty-seven when Paul is talking about the Eucharist and. Um, and he talks about taking it in good standing. And if you do, you're damaging your soul because you're sinning against the body and blood of Christ. And if it's a symbol, if it just is re in remembrance and, no and nothing else, how is it a sin to take Not the, the well, yeah. Eucharist on its own? Yeah. Right. Like that doesn't, it doesn't compute. Yeah, yeah, he who does not discern it condemns himself or or drinks judgment upon on himself. himself. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, it's really strong language there. Yeah. And so I I had to be honest with myself and go, oh no. <laughs> I really have to figure out because I knew it was only the Orthodox and the Catholic. Yeah, Church. that's a great point. You've just eliminated so many options if you say amen to yeah. that teaching. I mean, the Luthers have a loose, uh, the Luther argument, yeah, like, yeah. that doesn't, it it doesn't work with scripture at all, and I looked into that too, hoping maybe I could be Lutheran for a minute, but yeah, I quickly was like, no, this doesn't even sync up, yeah, um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was really nerve-wracking at this point, because I knew I wasn't going to be able to go to the the church with the band and and the contemporary music and all that stuff anymore. I mean, I guess there are probably churches that do, but Catholic churches that do. But um, yeah, it was it was definitely a uh, gut check. Yeah, uh, in my faith at that time. So it was crazy. Did you go back and talk to your wife about? that reality because i you said she was doing her own study it was fascinating you said lent during lent so yeah there are churches so, you were going to that put an emphasis methodists on do lent they have a liturgical yeah. calendar so yeah, like yeah, yeah. The i know mainline, 
no nomination to do. I was just yeah, curious. If they're an old school mainline Prot uh, Protestant church, so yep. like Presbyterian, Anglican, Methodist, they have a liturgical calendar and they do Lent and Advent. Um, I mean, I, I didn't even know what Advent was until I married my wife and she's like, we have to go. It's like, oh, Advent starting like our first Christmas together. I'm like, what's Advent? Isn't well, it just those calendars? There are certain a mainline, uh, the old school uh, mainline denominations where you, you, I've seen these signs, midnight service. Yeah. Christmas Eve. That was astonishing. I didn't know that up until. Yeah. Like yeah the, our Methodist ago. church would have a midnight, a midnight service too. So. Yep um but yeah it was uh so we were kind of lockstep in this but i still was really hoping it wasn't going to be the catholic church at this point and so for me then it really started coming down to okay the main difference is the pope yep. and i need to look into that and so I think Steve Ray really helped me understand that his talk on uh, Peter and the keys um, is phenomenal. And then uh, just reading, reading the scriptures that he points out. And, and I know a lot of people would be like, well, you just watched one video. I'm like, no, I watched several videos. I watched, I, I got bought books. I read books. I was constantly researching things. Um, and right when this all started to, or, or right Right about the time I, I forgot this part when the uh, when I figured out I didn't agree with Luther and my next step really this all happened at the same time was I need to look at the first century church like I, I'm hoping I'm going to find a church of Christ and not a Catholic church in the first century and I bought the worst uh, Protestant textbook I think I'd ever read um, called Church History and it was crazy because I just went to a, 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 a Christian bookstore and just, I didn't even really look. I just bought it. I'm like, Oh, it's a textbook. I'll take it. And it happened to be written by uh, someone that teaches in the Bible department on my alma mater. So that was kind of even funnier, but um, so at the same time that I'm, I, I've just picked this book up. I've just been pretty much convinced that the Eucharist is, is the real presence but at the same time, I'm starting to read first century uh, uh, father, uh, early church fathers. And um, Ignatius is one of those that also helped me get over the edge with the Eucharist because his language on the Eucharist and his seven letters there is harsh uh, when it comes to if they don't believe that it is the body and blood of Christ, uh, have nothing to do with them. Uh, like it's strong, strong language. Um, and so that, and, and I got, it was funny because th this textbook that, um, it had no references. So it was kind of a Ooh. church history, but opinions. Ooh. And I'm like, this is a, uh, ac this is a collegiate textbook. Like, how That's do you scary. not have Dude, that is truly scary to think. Yeah. Of. Yeah. Cause for me, like uh, getting my master's, I always had to when I was writing my thesis and doing all that, I always had to go to the original source. So I would grab a textbook and go, okay, what's the theory? Okay, that's the theory. Okay, this is the source they're getting it from. Now, where did they get their research from? Oh, and I'd go back two or three people to find the original source that they got their original idea from. And I'd quote from that for my thesis and not yeah. you know, the theory that was developed off that. 
And this guy had nothing in there like that. But he had a list of early church fathers in the first and second century, which was great. And um, and so watching the the Peter and the Keys and then reading First Clement's uh, letter to the Corinthians and Ignatius on the bishops and, you, you know, follow your bishop, um, made me have to wave my white flag and go, oh my gosh, it is the Catholic Church. Um, because I think that First Clement letter is really important because at the time when it was written, it was, it's either between 70 and 90 AD. Uh, and at the time, John was still alive. The apostle St. John was still alive. And in my mind, in my Protestant mind, if I'm having issues at my church and we're splitting, it's essentially what was happening in Corinth at the time. They were kicking people, their, their clergy out because of over disagreements. And um, there would have been a second church of Corinth, right? <laughs> or, hey, we know John's over here in Turkey. Let's just write to him, which is right, right over the sea here. And that's a lot quicker, but no, they wrote to Rome, which is a lot farther away. And then they listened to him and did what, what uh, Clement told them to do. And that just blew my mind. I'm going, wow, that's, that's proof right there in the first century that Rome, the Bishop of Rome was head over all the other churches and they were already following Rome which was crazy. And even if they didn't, this is the interesting part, even if you didn't in that moment see all of the Catholic doctrines and dogmas, that's not the point. You're getting to the fundamental beginning. Like, does succession matter? Yes. Yeah. Were there bishops present? Yes. Did they have to have someone that was the arbiter? Yes. So you start going down that list and it's check, check, check. And then if you're honest, you then grab any modern denomination or anything that started over the past 500 years and try to place that into yeah. that scenario. It doesn't work. It doesn't fit at all. It doesn't fit. You have to be incredibly intellectually dishonest, in my opinion, because I've spoken to enough people and I can see like the wheels are turning, but it just can't be. They don't so want to believe it. So then you, yeah, because... In, in all fairness, in like in your case, if that's all they've been taught, it's really hard to hear something like that. What really got me too, um, and I won't get into my story because I care about yours, but the, you know, even being raised Catholic and then not knowing my faith that well, when I saw what Justin Martyr wrote about the order of the mass, that's yes. just speaks to me. The 153? Yeah, 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 yeah. Somewhere around there. Crazy. And I cite that often because you really have to shut your eyes to not see what's going on there in conjunction with what you just said in the early church, in conjunction with Polycarp, for example, um, and figures like him and Ignatius of Antioch. You can't just say, oh, that was their opinion. Yeah. Right? You just figure out what is the trunk and who left the trunk it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's at this point, like you put any any Protestant, sit him down and talk with Ignatius, and he would not consider them a Christian. He wouldn't. And I know, sorry, Protestants, if you're if you watch this, but it's the truth. 
the first century Christians, and I would say up to a, a, a few thousand years there, <laughs> yeah. or at least 15, 16, 1700 years, would not have considered you a Christian uh, for your beliefs in not believing in the Eucharist and not believing in the Pope and a number of other um a number of other beliefs there and it's crystal clear that that's how they believed in the first century church it's not vague it's not wishy-washy it's really clear and i think and i think scripture is clear once you understand it with that with those uh jewish glasses that steve ray always talks about it's great um, yeah you know like when when uh was that matthew 16 when he gives peter the keys and then you turn to Isaiah twenty two twenty two, and it's almost word for word when a new a new uh, chief steward of Israel is being appointed and he's given the keys, and any yeah. door he opens will be will be open, and open. any door he shuts will be shut. Yeah, and so binding and loosing, about, and yeah, and then Peter, I'm going to give you the keys, your your Petra, yeah, or Petros, you know, whatever you whatever you shut will be loose and loose and whatever you bind, bind and loose. Yeah. yeah, there we go. Which are legal terms for back then. Yeah. Um, and so you think about the 12 standing there in Capernaum, or not even, what are they? They're in Caesarea Philippi. Mm -hmm. And hearing this, they knew scripture. They were going to be thinking of Isaiah. They knew the kingdom of David. And you just see the structure of God's kingdom is just mapping and mirroring what the kingdom of Israel was. And it, it's it's incredible when you start when that when those shades fall off of your eyes and you can see that. It's uh and you can't unsee it. That's that's the key, I think, is is so amazing. You can't unsee it. So there are people that will acknowledge that, but then they'll continue running away from mm -hmm. the church you know they can't unsee it but that doesn't mean you can't actively run from it and and insist that you're fine you're comfortable where you are things like that um again i've just spoken to people that have described that and then they they recognize something is wrong here uh, related to what they were taught of course yep and then they realize I've got to do something, but I'm not ready to do something. So I'm going to stall. Um, again, in the moment, they're not saying I'm going to stall. They're just like frantically trying to figure out, yeah, what do I do? And it, and it's a scary proposition for a Protestant as an adult. I mean, actually, anytime, unless you grew up in a in a family that's just Catholic, or I mean, just Christian, right? They're they're spiritual, not uh, religious. not religious, yeah. Um, it's, it's extremely scary and difficult. Um, and I was terrified of the way my family was going to react. I mean, so much so that I don't even think I told them until we were already five or six months into, uh, RCIA that we'd already made the choice and we were going, um, and, and to the point that I had written a, I don't know, 45 page essay, or 60 page essay. So I, I can't remember the length now, but it was going over all of the objections that yeah. I really had with baptism. Like one of the tenets of church of Christ is you have to be immersed in your baptism. 
So I had to think through that. Like, what does scripture say about this? Does it have anything definite? What did the first century church? I had to go through that. Mary, obviously, uh, is, is a big thing. Um, but I think if you're honest with yourself and you realize the Pope's a real deal, it's in the Bible. It's always been there. It's just more clearly defined later on throughout history. Um, then everything else is kind of, it, it. it's not as hard to stomach. I'll say that. Sure. I think it's a lot easier once you get past that authority thing. Yeah. And to realize a lot of the things that people accuse the church of are the very heresies that the church condemned. That That was another thing that was pretty fascinating to me. I'm, I don't know if you came across that. Oh. But all the time and it was with a number of heresies again how can you declare how can anyone declare heresy unless they have the authority to say this deviates from the deposit of faith because i hear protestants calling each other uh heretics and i'm like according to what standard like once you again you leave that trunk of the tree it, it how can you it's whatever you want get whatever you want you can call whoever a heretic relative to your interpretation and relative to whatever you've been taught right yeah a hundred percent and it's it yeah it was uh it's really interesting because during that time this this entire time we're going through rca we're talking the 2020 elections and i would see I think it was just Satan trying to scare me off of the church. And I have friends right now that are discerning becoming Catholic now after we've become friends with them and started talking with them about our faith. And they're seeing these messages online too about all these conspiracy theories of the Catholic church. And it freaks you out at first, but then when you look into them, they're all bogus. They're all I have not found bogus. one. Yeah that is legit like the church owns a saddle a telescope in arizona called satan and what? then you yeah that's one of them and but what you find out is there's a mountain range that there's a bunch of telescopes on and there is a telescope on said mountain range that is it like the abbreviation for what it stands for it's like star or something like whatever spells out satan and the Catholic Church owns another telescope that's on the same mountain range as this other company that owns this telescope. And so it's not even Catholic owned. It just happens to be a telescope on the same mountain range that has good view of the stars that the Catholic Church has a telescope on. And so, but they contributed, no, this is a this is the Catholic Church's telescope. And you're like, no, it's not. Just do five minutes of reading and you'll find it's not, you know, and there. So, but I think in this generation, man, you're, you're so, you're less inclined when you, when you absorb things in five second bites, you're so less inclined. Um, even, I mean, to do that 20 years ago to actually research it or to avoid it. Like, some of those rabbit holes, I really don't know the point. I mean, obviously, I know who's behind it. Uh, the right. enemy absolutely despises the church. I mean, that's that's part of it, but it's just sad. And and, yeah. and I would also say, like, just any any headline, 
I was just talking to Steve on the last episode, Steve Ray talking yeah. about like, I wish that when someone sees a new headline, if it gives them pause, they have fear, they assume the worst, you know, read it, read, read it. the, well, yeah. And a lot of times it will come from like an encyclical or a statement yeah, out of context, it. proof texted, not proof texted, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, in isolation, no context. Um, yeah, all of those say, uh, that of the of the blessing of of, of couples uh, headlines that were out there. You read that whole thing and you go, "Nope, that's not what it says at all." But that was the headlines. That was uh, those are the headlines, and they are. It, there's like painstaking detail to explain. What that it no is. one wants to spend no forty eight paragraphs paragraphs to to understand it to understand it and furthermore to connect how that relates to other encyclical and not to say it's an encyclical, uh, but how it connects to other statements from many many other popes and how um, how descriptive you have to be in these circumstances. But if you just grab a, a portion of anything. Like I, yeah. I, I was also saying, like if you go back a hundred years, you just want to put any encyclical under a microscope, put yourself back in that time frame, and you know, add Twitter to the mix, add all these platforms. We have no idea how insane it would have been even a hundred years ago. Two hundred. Oh yeah. Everything that comes out from the Vatican, I mean, that's scrutinized to the nth degree. That's just. I would say, a hundred years ago, nobody knew what was happening at the Vatican. Yeah. You know, like, unless something big happened and it would be in the newspapers, for the most part, nobody knew. You know, you go back 300 years, who knew who the Pope was if you're just a normal Catholic living your life? Like, you probably did, but did you know anything about him? No, you just knew his name and that he's the Pope, and that was probably it. Um, you know, yeah. and and so today, with the, with the speed in which we can get information— um, it's really sad with the amount of information we have at our fingertips and the amount of of uh, how little people do research into anything anymore. And it's it's kind of breathtaking. But yeah, so that that's all of those things I had to work through. And so I think that the day that I came out of my office and <laughs> walked into the kitchen, I was like, honey, we got to join the Catholic church. And I think she, well, yeah, she was shocked. She told me she kind of, she's like, I didn't think you'd get there. And I was like, yeah, no, we, we have to do this. Um, and so I was really nervous about my first mass. Um, I had this, uh, I can only ex describe it as like a, it was an Anglican church that I, that we went to again, with my wife growing up Methodist, this is during, this was the time when I was like, I'm not going back to church. Mm. Um, on Ash Wednesday, she wanted to go to this Anglican church that was by the apartments we were living at. I was like, fine, we'll go. Um, and so they're, they were Catholic-esque, right? I mean, they, they had all the vestments, they were doing all the things. And during this, this service, I had this like, visceral angry reaction to everything that was happening and with every ounce of my being i wanted to get up and leave 
Like it, I can't even, I don't even know what was over me. There was nothing like, I can just say that I think Satan was really working hard on me not to go back into the church yeah. or to back into my faith. It's the only thing I can think of. And he's whispering in my ear during that service going, no, this is stupid. You don't need to be here. This is dumb. And I was like shaking mad about it. Like, and I was fine until service started. It was really a weird experience. So I was worried that that's how I was going to react to my first mass. And, and then I was going to be like, I don't know what to do now. I have nowhere to go. Um, but we went to a Saturday evening mass because I figured it would be not as uh, not as populated, right? And I just, I was blown away by, I had no idea what was going on. I was not doing the sign of the cross at the same time. I was, you know, not kneeling when I, you know, like a bumbling idiot during mass. And we were sitting on the back pew. And, um, but I had rarely felt so much peace uh, than I did that first mass. And this wasn't a, a nest. This is a parish we ended up going to uh, when we were confirmed, but um, it was, it was a, uh, it was a great experience that it was kind of confirmation for me. Um, and so, yeah, we, we saw that was 2019 and we signed up for RCIA and went through that whole thing. And it was, uh, RCIA for me was by this point, all this research I had done, like, I felt like I could almost teach the class. Yeah. <laughs> but you know it was great getting together once a week and talking to, to other catholics or soon to be converts and um and so that that was great but you know for me at this point i would i'd already worked through mary i'd already worked through all of my uh all the things that i had big objections to to the catholic church um so yeah it was uh it was a great experience and uh yeah so we uh we were confirmed it took us a little longer because we had to go through uh a, a bit of a process but we were confirmed on uh um pentecost sunday in 2021 so it was definitely a journey and so i had plenty of time to back out if uh you know anything happened and uh but yeah we didn't and how I'm was that experience for you and your wife on pentecost sunday it was great um, I was so excited to take the Eucharist for the first time, um, you know, going for almost two years, a little over two years and not being able to partake um, and just getting blessings every time. Uh, it was it was a great experience. And uh, I'm I'm extremely grateful to my sponsor. Um, she was a, a co-worker, actually, which was kind of interesting um, how that how God put her in my in my life. Um, at the exact right time, because I met her in January that year in 2019. Wow. And so, uh, she ended up being my sponsor. Cause she, I didn't, I didn't even know she went to the par that parish until I was like, Hey, where do you go? She's like, Oh, I, I go to St. Jude's. I'm like, Oh, that's where we're going to go through RCIA. I need a sponsor. <laughs> and she's like, I will gladly do it. So <laughs> that's so cool. Um, it worked out. So, so, um, I'm curious just a little bit about the friends that are discerning what what do you what kind of advice do you give them do you draw i'm assuming a lot on your recent journey it's so fresh that that you can go right back to that 
Yeah, and it's it's really interesting hearing them talk about their the pushback they're getting from their Protestant friends, um, and and there's the it's always the relationships with other people I think are the hardest thing when you're joining the Catholic Church as a Protestant because you're either going to come they're forever going to be changed. And they're either going to be uh, not as great as they were before because you're no longer at said church with them. Yeah. Um, or they're going to be cut off completely. And so they're kind of going through that struggle now. And so it's just for for me, it's always being there for an open ear to talk to and to relate to them. Go, yeah, I get it. And if they have any questions at all about anything, I will drop whatever I'm doing and make sure that I look up exactly what it is that they're looking for and not just, uh, I mean, unless it's something simple, Yeah. Um, but give them the best answer I possibly can to just help them on, on this journey. Cause I think um, a lot of people, I think if you're a, a cradle Catholic um, don't necessarily get the, what people are giving up when they become Catholic in some, some certain, certain, uh, certain circumstances. And mm -hmm. um, it, it's difficult because my family uh, is definitely one of those that is not happy whatsoever that we're Catholic. Um, so it's not been a, uh, it's not been a fun experience on that end talking with uh, my family about it. So, yeah, it's crazy when you just think about the difficulties, you know, post, difficulties the entire time but post-reformation to have that chasm yeah be represented in a family is yeah it's like everything just condensed to there's a family here well, that feels this incredible rift because of the the um catholic protestant rift it's great yeah and you know i'll say this too and i what verse is that where Christ says that I'm not here to bring peace. I'm here to bring a sword and daughters will fight with mothers. Oh, and, and yeah, sons will yeah, fight with fathers. Yeah. Like that verse is completely comforting and a hundred percent accurate to me. Um, because at the end of the day, when you're struggling with this, if you're somebody watching this, that you're going through that, it's your salvation that you're working on. It's not your, your family can't save you. You know, um, for me, it's, you know, with being the head of the household, it's my wife and kids that I need to look out for. Yeah. And um, I don't care that my Nana says that I've given up on the Lord. Uh, I don't care that my mom's first uh, utterance was that priests are pedophiles when I told her. Mm. Um, yeah. It, I, it, yeah, it bothers me they said it. But at the end of the day, I'm like, I don't care. Um, because... Um, I need to follow the truth and Christ is the truth and I'm going to follow him to his church. So, uh, you know, for any, any brothers and sisters watching this that are going through that struggle right now, please know that, uh, talk to anyone that's gone through it. Cause they will be able to relate to you a hundred percent. Um, that's Christ is with you. That's well said. Um, the other thing, I wish I had more of an opportunity to say it, but when people, have attacks on the church, you know, whether it's their own hurt, misconception, whatever it is, to have the faith to pray so 
intently about people that that say those things, right? And you certainly never know because we've <laughs> I've interviewed people like this. You never yeah. know when those people could enter the church, and then people and then their family says you're like the last person I ever expected to enter the church. But that's the power of prayer. So yeah. if someone attacks you on your YouTube channel, you know, um, I yeah. pray for them, you know? Yeah, I do. And yeah. I get those attacks daily. So, you know, the guy, I got a comment the other day about uh, gr uh, grieving images. So our graven images. So, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's par for the course. Uh, and we got to pray for, for our Protestant brothers and sisters because uh, it's our job. You know, I mean, we're, we're uh priest, prophet and King and we need to act like it. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> Great. Brian, anything else you want to add? That was, um, that was a lot. <laughs> that was a lot. Sorry. No, I Sorry. Yeah, no, I think I'm good. I mean, I think it's, uh, uh, I think that's pretty much covers it, but, uh, yeah, if y'all want to check out my channel, I've got a ton of videos going over how to deal with family or I got one video on that. I got going through the annulment process. I have a, a bunch of content that would directly relate to people who are looking to convert. Um, just walking through my experience and, uh, and just trying to explain the faith so more people can come to the Catholic church. Amen. Thanks again, Brian. Appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you. All right, everyone. Until next time, take care and God bless. Bye.